fashion. This is all in for the love of the game. This is Love Set Match. Andre Agassi had this goal, you don't have to be better than everyone else in the draw when you go out on the court. Like, you have to be better than someone that's across the net. I think you got to stay active in a sport sense, you know, go out there, do some sports. I think it always makes you feel better, maybe you're more tired in the very moment, but actually the rest of the day feels better. And then I think giving back as well, you know, making other people happy is going to give you a good feeling too. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tennis Pal Chronicles, the podcast to feed your passion for all things tennis. I'm so excited to have Valerie Garcia with me, my co-host, who is my best friend, and I just miss you so much. I can't believe that we finally get together. Where you been? Hey, Philip. I've been hiding, <laughs> hiding out. <laughs> the world reopened, and I was like, no, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Well, it's so great to talk to you again. I really miss you, and I, I miss talking to you about life in general, but especially about tennis. We haven't talked too much about it because our favorite event of the year just announced that they're going to have Indian Wells BNP Paribas Open in October. Yes, yes. That is so exciting. It really is. I mean, I'm not excited to freeze because I don't, I don't really know that I feel like I probably won't be able to do any night matches, but... Um, well, you know me with like zero body fat. I'm always freezing. <laughs> you know, so that's going to be horrible for Philip me. Philip bragging about and his body fat. And it's in the fat. desert too. <laughs> What's that? I said you're over there bragging about your body fat. <laughs> I don't have zero percent body fat, but I don't have, so I don't have an excuse. I'm just freezing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I heard Serena is like that too, that she has very little body fat, even though she's, you know, definitely made of muscle in an interview i read she talked about like ha always having to have a blanket always wearing a jacket and i was like that's just like me I, when she said that nice and then, that's when i realized oh maybe that's the reason is because i don't have as much body fat as i need to keep myself warm so i'm freezing all the time it could be like 80 degrees outside and i'm still wearing long pants on the court you know yeah i feel you i just figured i was cold-blooded Oh, it could be that too. Yeah. You know, even actually my temperature, when I take my temperature, I'm never um, like what a normal human's temperature is supposed to be. I'm always low. I'm like oh, 96 in the 96 range. Wow. Interesting. So yeah, we're going to freeze in we Indian Wells, but we, we have to go. We have to. Oh, you better believe we're going to go. We're going to have a great time. And here's the inside scoop also for you, Valerie. Rosie Casals has said that she's working now on putting together that big gala event oh, that I fantastic, always talk about. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, and this year they're going to honor Billie Jean King. It's going to be a tribute to her. It's going to be amazing. You're gonna, we're going to meet everybody who comes, including Billie Jean King, and usually Mary Carilla will be there and Pam Shriver and, you know, all the legends. So it's Nice. Marti so I'm going to be Martina searching for your coattail, and I will try and hop on. Yeah. <laughs> take, hopefully we'll get to take meet. Take it for a ride. <laughs> Martina Navratilova, Chris Everett, they're, they're always I think, well, there. Like, was Lindsay Davenport there one Lindsay year, Davenport. too? The who's who's of women's tennis. So I'm super excited that we get to be a part of that. And yeah, we'll definitely be volunteers and help out as much as we can to raise money for Love and Love Tennis Foundation at Indian Wells. Can't wait. It's going to be great. 
Well, as you know, Tennis Pal Chronicles is sponsored by Tennis Pal, which is a great app you can download for Android or iPhone, and you can find people to play with. Yes, Philip, this weekend is Memorial Day weekend, and I have three days off, so I can't wait to use Tennis Pal and find someone to go hit with. It's been a while, so I'm excited. What a great idea. That's a that's an awesome idea. Definitely check out Tennis Pal for Memorial Day weekend and find someone to play with. That's awesome. They also have really updated their news section. And of course, they're going to be talking about Roland Garros because the draw just came out. And it's going to be, is this the one where Rafa Nadal passes Roger? Yes. Well, this episode of Tennis Pal Chronicles is very special to me because it's part two of the Vanya King interview that I did. And wow, she was so open and honest and forthcoming about her history, about her Asian American heritage, about coaching with her father, playing doubles, and what it was like to win Wimbledon. I mean, I was just trying to get it out of her. What was that moment like? Because I just know I'm never going to win Wimbledon. (laughs) So I wanted to know firsthand, you know, there it was, the trophies in her hand. What was it like? You know, what did you think of her, her interview? It was, it was really cool. I was so happy to hear it. Um, I first, like, I didn't realize that she was local hometown girl. Right, Southern California, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in your backyard, right? Literally in the city I am in right now is where she was born. She grew up in Long Beach, which is really a stone's throw away, and she like went to Long Beach Poly, and some really interesting stuff. She and Billie Jean King both have, of course, the same last name, but they they actually have a lot in common together. Yeah, it was was so informative. I love listening to the to the interview. I can't wait to hear the second half for sure. Yeah, it's going to be so great. Yeah, I just found my notes on Billie Jean King. So both Billie Jean King and Vanya King went to Long Beach Poly. Isn't that crazy? That's cool. So Vanya was class of 2007 and Billie Jean King was <clears throat> class of 1961. Super uh, cool. They, yeah, they both had brothers who played college sports. I think... Um, Vanya talked about her brother, Philip, who really was an amazing men's junior player, uh, really rose up the ranks. And they, t- she, they talked a little bit about how challenging it was for him to not go pro because the parents thought that he should not, that he should pursue college and other things, even though he was a f- tremendous player. Billie Jean King's brother played baseball for Long Beach State. They g- both grew up on the public courts of Long Beach. And of course, the Billie Jean King tennis courts are there in Long Beach, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they also both played at Wilson High School on those courts. So I just thought that was kind of amazing. That is that is such a cool coincidence. Yeah, fun trivia. <laughs> yes, I love it. I love it. And it was it was just really fun, like you said, to hear her talk about Wimbledon and like the the doubles partner and the experience all those experiences you know it's fascinating for me because obviously I've been watching tennis long enough that that I'm very familiar with Vanya um but I I don't recall like you know there wasn't a lot of social media and YouTube press conference access and things like that back when you know I was watching her career so I I don't feel like I really got very much insight at all into who she was as a person or or kind of feedback on her career and stuff like that so it was, it was really good stuff 
Yeah, and it makes me wonder because we are celebrating Asian American Heritage Month in May. And so it just made me think about how the roles of race have changed in tennis, where I think really there was a sense of there was uh, anyone who was white and then there were others, right? And now it feels like the game of tennis is a little bit more reflective of the world in general. I think we still got a long way to go. But yeah, it was really humbling to listen to Vanya talk about how she struggled you know, to find her identity and not make too much noise and not be too different. And and now we have like someone like Naomi Osaka, who's really strong, making statements, standing up for Black Lives Matter and other things that she believes in. And I just think that that's so powerful. And, and the Asian community it, as well, right? I mean, she falls into both. Yeah, which I think is so powerful and I think is so good for the game of tennis so that People all over the world can see themselves in the game and be inspired and believe that they can be on that court in Wimbledon someday too. Because I definitely believe that Vanya inspires a multitude of Asian Americans and really rags to riches story she had coming from Southern California and just working super hard. She obviously wasn't very tall and uh, and yet to hold up those uh, Wimbledon and U.S. Open Cups, I mean, what a dream. What a dream. Yeah, so amazing. So amazing. Well, let's listen to part two of Vanya talking. And honestly, I could have talked for hours and hours with her, and I wish it was longer. <laughs> I mean, her insights were so inspiring. I just love this conversation, and I hope you do too. This is part two of the champion Vanya King. And what was really cool was your energy between changeovers. I mean, you were all smiles at the U.S. Open. Like, if you watch your footage, it's such a radiant, beautiful smile. You're so happy. You guys are really, as, as tense as it is, U.S. Open final, uh, you guys were really, you, you could feel the palpable, positive energy you guys were feeling. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Slava and I played the best when we were relaxed and having fun. So, um yeah. For most of our partnership, you know, we were really able to exhibit that. And I think that also I've learned over the years, um, one, that I play best when I'm having fun. So, you know, I might as well, you know, have two bonuses, you know, have fun plus get to play better. Um, and also, you know, there's, for me, there was no point in and getting angry at our getting angry at my partner or vice versa, you know, then we're just kind of dividing ourselves. Um, I felt like, you know, we definitely work best when we're super positive. Um, I obviously, I played the best when I played with a partner that was relaxed and positive. Um, and I naturally, I think have a little bit more energy on court, you know, my intensity levels was higher than Slava. So everyone kind of has their own um, ideal intensity level. So mine was, I don't know, maybe like six or seven out of 10 and hers was five or four, you know, uh, but she needed to have, you know, but if she got down to two, you know, it was important for me to, to try to pep her up and, and keep her motivated. The winning ceremony I thought was really beautiful. And there was a moment where you actually, Mary Jo Fernandez was presenting and you actually asked for the mic back which I thought was so cool that you would assert yourself and just say, you know what, I have something to say still. Uh, so you asked for the mic back and you were sharing. And I think one of the things that you said was you felt like um, no one believed in you 
accept your coach. And it, it was so important to you that you had that support around you. And that's what brought you here. And could you talk a little bit about that feeling of no one believing you? Because I'm sure we all feel that. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I took the mic back because I felt like I didn't get enough time to talk. I feel I felt like Mary Jo took it away from me without me getting to finish. Oh, and I was okay. like, when am I going to have this chance again? Right. right. Like I, right. I, I, I can't wait till next time. What is this? Never, you know, so um, That's smart. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, even at 21, you know, growing up and this is kind of a, goes into like being Asian and being a minority in this country, you know, feeling like you're a bit underlooked, always wondering if um, you're being Having the mic taken away from you. Yeah, I mean, not just that, but like, you know, you you, you wonder, um, because often it's not blatant, and you wonder if the way that people treat you has something to do with your color, um, you know, obviously being female, so, you know, being double minority, and and Asians typically are thought of as this kind of model minority that don't speak up and don't typically make a fuss. And and also my parents kind of taught me don't don't um, fight with people, like don't have get into confrontations. I was very un- uncomfortable, especially when I was younger, to get into confrontations. And now I don't see it as being. I still don't like being in a confrontation, but I still. But I now see okay, there is value in expressing myself, and I should stand up for myself and what I believe in. So, um, yeah, I mean, growing up as a kid, I had, you know, uh, uh, I had a, a, a father, a parent coach that was, was incredibly passionate, but obviously people thought that he was a little wacko sometimes. So, um, you know, I think you get judged. I think players or kids with very intense parents get judged for the parents and then also being, I think being Asian and, you know, being, I wasn't this, you know, tall, white, blonde um, girl that, you know, in terms of opportunities, I feel like people did think that, okay, you know, she can only go so far. Um, We also, I was also coming up at a time where there was a little bit of a drought of American tennis in general, you know, coming off the heels of a great generation, you know, um, Lindsay and Capriati and Serena and Venus and um, a lot of great players that came up. And then I think that there was a lot of kind of negative press and a lot of pressure on the players and kind of my generation, which was very few that we had, like we had to make it and we had to excel. Whereas I think that the media now has recognized, okay, tennis has become so global that, you know, being top hundred or being top 50 or, you know, winning double slams, like that's, that's amazing in itself. And at that time, I think that if you weren't top 10 and you didn't win a slam in singles, that you were kind of nothing, that you were not good enough. Um, and and definitely, I think that um, the media kind of, you know, continued that idea that players didn't, if they didn't succeed as, you know, the top American players did in the past, then they weren't good enough, which isn't true. And, uh, and then, you know, I always had to wonder, was that a bit, you know, I was called uh, a veteran. I remember being called a veteran at the US Open. There was, you know, they have those uh, scrolling kind of news yes. of what happened. And it said, veteran Bonnie King has won her first round. I was 21. And I was like, <laughs> was tough, you know, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I turned pro at 17. But nowadays, 
nowadays, obviously that would not happen. Being 21 is still quite young, but so it's just a media perception. I, yeah, I had, you know, I had to wonder if it was, you know, because of, you know, my ethnicity and being my size, you know, when they see kind of me, obviously I wasn't like a huge physically imposing player. So I did have to run a lot. I wasn't a defensive player. I was an aggressive player, but I did have to run a lot because I just didn't have the firepower that some other larger players had. So I wonder if that also, you know, you kind of connect that, um, okay, you know, she's a scrappy player to being a journeyman, you know, you kind of like put those a little bit together, whereas uh, you wouldn't normally if it was someone that had maybe a bigger game. And yeah, so I mean, there's all, and, and there's obviously a lot of smaller players that have done well, you know, Justine Anna um, is just one example. So, you know, obviously smaller players can do well. And I just felt like you just never know, right? Like being Asian, you never know how much of it is coming from a little stereotype or a little bit of discrimination. You're just never sure. And it and it's tough because you do want to, you do want to differentiate that and, and, say okay is that are you saying that because you you genuinely believe that off of my merit or are you kind of stereotyping me or discriminating sure and i've got to think that for the uninformed world that doesn't even understand what asian american is all they knew was michael chang i mean he was the only kind of asian american representation in all of the tennis world and even today really is still thought of as like the only person uh, yeah. And so, and he was small, scrappy, and really fast as well. So there's that kind of, right? There's that kind of like. He was a veteran. Uh, yeah, a veteran. <laughs> Did, have you ever met Michael or have you ever had any talks with him or? Uh, related yeah, so to him I actually a few days ago did um, a chat with him, like a, a panel with him for Asian American. Oh, that's so great. First month. Yeah, and I think they're going to. Um, published that from the USTA side in a few weeks, I think. Um, so stay tuned on that. So it was myself and Anna Lee that got to chat with him. It was, and I've, I've known him cause he's from SoCal. Irvine, I've known yeah. him growing up. He was, yeah, he was very supportive of, you know, young Asian American players. I actually worked with him a little bit. I actually worked with him a little bit when he was working with Amber who is now his wife. So um, Amber and I were working with him for a little bit. Um, oh, interesting. And then, yeah, then I, I think that was then right before I ended up uh, going to Florida and working with Tariq. Gotcha. Wow, that is so interesting. I, and I think you can't really deal with the Asian American heritage idea unless you talk a little bit about your parents and what they were like. And you had mentioned that you, maybe your dad was perceived in a certain way. I heard in another interview that your dad had a heavy accent. Um, so I'm sure yeah. that him talking to everyone in the tennis world and not really knowing tennis, as you said, he just learned it himself a lot, like Richard Williams, I guess, um, that maybe he met with a lot of kind of uh, pushback against, you know, just being different from the world. And yet, yeah. you know, it's just amazing what he did in, in helping not only you, but your whole family was all tennis, right? Yeah. Um, so my parents did not play tennis. Uh, it was actually my brother that started. My brother was a great player in his own right. He was um, the number one player in at 17 and 18. He won Kalamazoo twice. Uh, he got to about 280 in the world. And then he went to Duke and then played a little bit after, got to top 300 again. So he's also uh, 
not a, he, he's very, he's very smart, my brother, <laughs> but he was very naughty when he was a kid. So at nine, um, I think he got like 40 pink slips in a week. Ah. He had a, yeah. Um, and so his teacher told my parents, Hey, like, I think you should put him. He's just, he has a lot of energy. Um, he was just, a, he just liked to be kind of a prankster and a jokester. You know, it wasn't like a, a mean thing at all, but he just had a lot of energy and this, and she recommended them to put him into a sport or music. So basically putting him to some activities to give him an outlet. And his for energy. His yeah. 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 So he ended up actually passing by Long Beach city college and there was a tournament going on. It must've been like the Long Beach designated tournament. And um, he saw Janet Lee playing. So oh. Janet Lee is, yeah, I don't know if you remember her, but she was top 20 or top 30 in singles and top 10 in doubles. She was a Taiwanese American like us. Um, and he saw her playing and picked tennis. And then he also got into piano as well uh, as, as his music um, choice. So yeah, because of my brother, my sisters and I, followed in his footsteps because my parents didn't have a lot of money growing up. Um, you know, they, they could not afford to bring us to other different, like we, we took lessons when we were kids with various different activities, but you know, to do something full-time couldn't do um, separate sports. And plus there was four of us. So it was just not possible in terms of time management. Yeah. So my sisters and I, my sisters are two years older than me. And so we kind of, the three of us grew up together playing tennis. And then, um, as my dad, my dad, I think saw a little bit early, I want to say around 10 or so that I don't know what it was to be honest, but he saw that, you know, he picked me that I was going to be the one that was successful. I think it was, uh, definitely having to do with me being the youngest. So having the most time, um, and then also maybe he saw that I was incredibly competitive because I am very competitive. Um, so he picked me and then kind of focused on me a little bit more from that moment on, which I know was very difficult for my sisters as well because it was um, blatant prioritization of their younger sibling, you know? And, uh, but for me as well, it was difficult because then kind of all of the pressure got put on me. And then a lot of the times my parents would fight was because of me and my tennis. And tennis is, is an incredibly difficult sport, no matter what. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot out of the kids. It takes a lot of the parents and, and it's expensive. So if the parents do get involved, which, it's great if they do in a balanced and healthy way, but it, and it helps because of the finances, but it's still, you know, a lot of sacrifice. So, um, yeah, it wasn't easy. And it's so unusual because, uh, you know, my experience of my Asian parents are one, they don't want to spend money on stuff that is quote unquote hobby. And two, it's not like a true field that you think is going to be a career and they just think of it as something for fun. So it's kind of amazing yeah. that he had that. And and I heard that even your brother, they kind of encouraged him not to pursue professional tennis. Is that right? Yeah. So I think that my dad's goal was for us to be successful. You know, my mom was kind of focused on the academic side and my dad was focused on the athletic side. And I don't know if you're right. I mean, my dad was the type of person that was a bigger dreamer than I would say my mom. My mom was like, okay, let's go to college. You know, like there's always a plan. My dad yeah. is like, you know, big vision, let's go for it, big dreams. Um, so in that regard, it was kind of a good match. Um, but, you know, I think that 
they also recognized even if you wanted to get a full scholarship to college, you know, like to make this worth it, let's say it's a full ride to the best college in the U- in, in the U.S. Which so, you were offered, right? You were offered to go to Stanford, one of the best. Yeah. And you accepted yeah, so, and you were ready to go. Yes, I was. So I think that, but I still, you know, I had to put in all that work to be that good, to have that opportunity. So I think that even if, you know, I think my dad was more on the side of, okay, let's, let's go pro, let's go pro. But I think they also recognized that for this to be worthwhile, like we had to be really good, you mm. know? Um, so it's, a, it wasn't just a hobby because yeah, if it was just a hobby, they wouldn't, they wouldn't invest in it. Right. Right. And even on the finance side, I feel like, uh, Asian parents tend to be very shrewd about how they deal with stuff. And so, and I know how hard it is in tennis for people to even survive, uh, let alone travel and play and win the next tournament. And you're basically only as, uh, you know, successful as your next win, a lot like a restaurant, <laughs> like how, how, how much, how much can you make in the next day? You know? Yeah. And it's yeah, just constant. I mean, so, yeah, you definitely have to, you definitely have to sacrifice and I know my parents did sacrifice a lot to take me on trips and to bring me to all the great coaches that I was lucky to take lessons from. Um, I know my dad, you know, he was not stingy when he felt like he, in, when he was investing in the future. So I remember if it was a great coach, you know, they gave him a price and he just paid it no problem, you know, and he was like, okay, when's the next time? When can we get more time with you? So he really understood the value of investing in the future. And then, but I mean, yes, very stingy. We grew up, like, I was scared to spend a dollar, you know, up until <laughs> I was like 20. Yeah. Um, because that's how we grew up. I mean, we, we had to value a dollar because we just didn't have a lot of money. Right. Right. Um, and so even the time that we spent, you know, with coaches, my dad would say, Hey, you know, this is X amount of dollars that we're spending per minute. So I'd be like, Oh my gosh. Okay. we got to like work really hard, no water, run fast, grab the poles, you know, like you know, how to maximize our time, which was true. I mean, like I, wow. my, we would get, we wouldn't have an allowance, but if we, you know, hit targets and stuff, we get like a dollar a week to go to pick and save. And so we get a dollar and my sisters and I are so excited to go to pick and save and like pick out all the opportunities to get something that was under a dollar, which was, you know, a pack of gum or a bag of chips or something, you know, but it was so exciting. So for us to like spending like 80 bucks on a lesson in an hour, that was so much to us. So, you know, it helped us also value, um, the time that we spend and, um, and, and, and the effort that my parents put into it. Yeah. And how did that carry over into your professional career? Because you were on tour for like 15 years and it's so hard to financially make it happen. Did you have investors or how did you keep the, the plate spinning? Because it's so tough. Yeah. So I was lucky that I, um, I broke through fast. So, you know, as you know, I was supposed to go to college and in that gap year, uh, the, you know, before going to Stanford, I got a wild card the year before I got a wild card uh, to US Open into the qualifying and I qualified and I won a round. And so from that result, I went from, you know, 900 in the world, you know, just I was a good junior playing some futures and got a few points to being 250 in the world. Right. And then I ended up continuing. I, I just played tournaments in the US because there's challenger events in the US up until the end of the year played the tournaments that I could get into. I ended up that year, um, I think at one, 170 or 180. And then by 
Indian Wells the following year, I was top 100. I remember breaking top 100 at Indian Wells. So I think I broke through in about six months, which is really, really unusual. Yeah, that's um, I've done it. I've actually done it twice because when I got hurt that first time and I stopped and I came back, I actually did get back to the mm-hmm. top 100 within six months. But right. I didn't that was your have, ankle, right? Uh, no, that was my back. Oh, your back. You heard any disc. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I had a special ranking. So my special ranking was top hundred. So it gave me entry into bigger events that I did well. And so it was easier, let's say, than it was that when I was a kid, cause you came from, like, you had to really start from scratch. Right. Um, so, you know, doing well quickly obviously helps financially. Um, you know, I, I, I made a decent amount of money that year. However, after I stopped working with Ray, I had a year where I really, really struggled. Um, because of that decision, I, I actually wanted to go to college and my parents didn't let me go to college. So I really struggled for about a year just mentally and also my game suffered a lot. I, I won six or seven matches the whole year playing you know, like 25 tournaments or 30 tournaments that year. So it was a really bad year tennis-wise and mentally and emotionally just not knowing what I wanted to do. And I wasn't working with my dad, who was the main driving force, you know, it was too much pressure, but now I had no, like no, no one pushing me anymore, which was, you know, trying to find my own motivation was hard because I just had never done it before. Um, And then, yeah. So when I went to work with, with Tariq and again, you know, one, just, you know, the start of our relationship showed me what a good person he is, is I, called him and I said, Hey, you know, I would like to come work with you. Um, I had $30,000 in my bank account, Mm. which sounds like a lot, but that's enough for six months. If I don't have a coach, if I travel by myself, you know, if I basically, if you don't have a coach and you travel, you don't have a team and you really try to be, um, stingy, you know, there's value in that, that you save money, but also you're not investing in yourself. You're not giving yourself the best chance to succeed down the road. So, you know, it's, I think the players that don't, that you need to, you need to invest for the future um, to a certain extent, you know, you need to say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to put in the work for three, six months and I'm going to give myself three to six months more to play tournaments and then see um, you can't, you can't get results in a week, you know? Um, so anyways, yeah, I went to Tariq and I said, Hey, you know, how much is it going to cost? And cause I always seem to stay at home and obviously I have to pay for accommodation and for training and it's expensive. Um, and he said, don't worry about it. Like, I'll just, I'll just charge you whatever is, whatever you think is fair, whatever you can afford, I'll charge, that's what I'll charge you. Wow. And so that was a huge relief for me. I was really, really lucky that I found him not only because he's an amazing coach, but also, um, really understanding that, Hey, you know, if, if I don't charge her less then um, she won't be able to get this opportunity. So yeah, I mean, throughout my career, especially when I was with him, I was really lucky. Um, and then of course, uh, it was reciprocal when I did well, you know, I made sure that I paid him as much as possible because, you know, there was time I knew that he had my back. So we have to have each other's backs here. You know, when I'm doing well, we help each other. Like I help him. And then when I'm not doing well, he was there for me. So, um, I was, I was lucky. Yeah. Again, that, um, and then he, he told me, I remember sitting down because I had that horrible year and saying, you know, I was not sure if I wanted to keep playing. And he said, look, 
you have to decide if you want to play or not. You you can't just keep going in limbo because you're just wasting your time. You're wasting your money. You're wasting everybody else's time. Like, it's just not worth it. And it was true. I, you know, I was in limbo and I was feeling so sorry for myself. And at the end of the day, you know, making the decision, yes or no, had to happen because it was, there's no point of doing it halfway or not 100%. So um, he said, but I guarantee you that if you put in the work, the results will come. And he's told me that multiple times over my career. And I totally believe that. Uh, but I mean, if you put in the right work and, and then after I had my ankle surgery and your, and your body is capable of doing what you need to do. <laughs> after my surgery, I realized, okay, well, putting in the right work still doesn't work because my ankle is right. Your body's not allowing you. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I said, okay, me being, you know, um, a planner, I was like, well, how long will that take? And he said, okay, I, I guarantee you in six months, it will happen. And I saw results in three months. Like I started be being able to break even within three months. Um, and so, yeah. And then from there I was, you know, I was doing fine again. I was back to top hundred and, um, you know, I, I was able to financially support myself. That's great. And, and it does sound like you are a planner. You're, you're very, uh, good at uh, putting things together and making sure things are organized. So that's got to have helped your career as well. Um, yes and no. So I'm a, I'm a planner, I think, because I like to control things. <laughs> I'm <boss. laughs> so I'm like, I need to know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also a little bit ADD and I'm also very impulsive too. So I like to plan things out because it just, again, I'd like to to know what's going to happen. It's me being controlling, but oftentimes, oftentimes it doesn't happen the way that I think it's going to happen. Sure. And especially in tennis, you know, you have to get used to the unexpected because you never know, you know, you could get hurt, you know, you could do well, or your partner's play, you know, your partner might get hurt or she might do well, or, you know, like anything can happen. The, the circumstances and also any given day and any given match is always very different. You never play the same match in the same conditions yeah. with the same ball, same temperature. And, you know, it's, so we do have to be very flexible in that way, but I think that's also why we try to control as much as we can. And so often for myself, it's trying to control more than I can control things that are out of my control. Right. Wow. And that's great coaching, right? Only try to control the things you can. Uh, yeah. So it's easy great. to say, hard to do. Incredibly <laughs> hard, incredibly hard. But you've done it. You've won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. That's incredible. You've held those trophies. How did you take care of yourself? What did you use the money on, or in what, in what way did you show yourself love after you won these one incredible things? Well, I was really lucky that my parents helped me invest um, early on in my career. So my parents invested in real estate when they first moved to the U.S. Um, they had a fish and chips restaurant that was, they bought a bankrupt fish and chips restaurant, turned it around in a year, and then started investing their money in real estate. So um, unfortunately, I know diversity is key, but that's <laughs> I, knew, I knew real estate and they knew real estate. Um, so at least we're not investing, you know, let's say, you know, like in one block and that's it, you know, so I've got a, a couple of properties in different places. Um, but they were the first ones to kind of put my money into something long-term uh, before I even recognized the value of investing. I mean, I was 17. And right. so um, after that, I think the first few purchases, cause I was so focused on tennis, um, you know, I just said, look, 
tell me what you need, help me invest it. I'm, I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm, I trust you guys. Um, and then as I got older and started to kind of want more, um, control, uh, control, but also, you know, I wanted to really understand everything that my money was going into and, and really be behind all of it. So, um, you know, I started, I, I, and I moved to Florida. So they actually helped me buy my, my house that I'm sitting in right now. And, um, and so, you know, since then have kind of made decisions on myself by myself, um, mostly in the real estate space. That is so great. Congratulations on that. And it sounds like you could do seminars on financial literacy and real estate as well, because we need that for our kids as well. <laughs> Not only <laughs> well, tennis lessons. I, I recognize now how fortunate I am that they took the initiative before I recognized it, because if they didn't, I would have just spent the money on, you know, anything that I wanted to at that time. But, you know, it was important. Now I look back, I'm very appreciative because I can, I can, um, take advantage of the fruits of those investments now, which, you know, now that I'm retired, I don't have, you know, like the checks come in sporadically, but they're large, they're often large checks. So, you know, I don't have those coming in anymore and it's, I have to be more consistent and more frugal um, in terms of, you know, my overall spending. So I'm really glad that they did that for me. I'm really lucky that they did that for me. And, and, um, and you're right. I hope that other players, get that opportunity as well. The WTA does offer uh, a lot of kind of seminars for players, you know, but obviously they're not going to tell, they're not going to be a financial manager. So they're right. not going to tell players do this. They're just going to say here, here are, you know, different aspects of investing and just teaching them terms and the importance of investing. And, um, but you know, it, it, it is tough because when we are on tour, a hundred percent of everything of ourselves, our mind, body, emotions are to tennis and they have to be. If you're anything less than hundred percent, you will not succeed because everyone else is at hundred percent and it's still tough. Um, so, you know, it, it is hard to think outside of tennis. It's hard to think about what's, you know, it's, it's basically planning for after tennis, which also sometimes makes you feel a bit guilty. Like, oh, you know, do I think that I'm not going to make it, you know, cause you also have to have confidence in yourself. And so, um, but I think it's, it's important to find the right time to address it, you know, maybe in the off season or off weeks, um, just to spend a little bit of time just to say, Hey, you know, I don't need to spend a few months studying this, uh, maybe, you know, invest a little bit here, a little bit there and be a little bit more consistent with it, I think would be really beneficial. Cause I know that there's a lot of athletes in general as I'm, we know that the stats for athletes and across a lot of sports is not great in terms of financial management. Yeah. Also, you were involved in the WTA charities. Uh, I actually work with Rosie Casals at love and love tennis foundation. So I know that yeah. you're connected. So yeah. I, I think WTA, Give you guys a grant? Yes, we're actually supposedly one of the official charities of the WTA, which is such an honor and a privilege. But it's just so interesting that you were also working part time for the WTA and kind of seeing what was happening in the tennis world from that point of view. And did you find it hard to kind of find your place in the tennis world as an Asian American, or did you feel like it, it, it came to you? Um, so I actually felt like being on tour, I felt like in the WTA, I felt much more accepted than I did in the States, actually. Um, I feel like, I mean, you know, with 
when you're in your home country, you got, you have like the, the history of juniors. Then you also have, you know, the Federation, which is every Federation is political. Um, I've experienced that as a junior and as a pro I'm now on the USJ board and trying to learn. I'm learning a lot about the inner workings of the USJ, which has been incredibly interesting. It's also given me a, a good perspective to say, okay, well, how difficult is it to, you know, to keep this kind of organization running? And, um, you know, as, as a player, we have a very narrow minded opinion of what the USTA does. Um, but, you know, I have a, a greater appreciation for it and of, of the difficulty of that job being on the board now. Um, and the same thing for WTA charities as a player, you know, we had, we had only our own uh, needs in mind and we, you know, and our own demands and, you know, getting to know kind of the, the um, administrative side has been really interesting and rewarding. Um, so it was, it was hard to trend. It was hard to transition because, um, you know, the last few years I struggled with injuries, especially I had ankle surgery a few years ago. And I recognized that my career was ending, that I needed to move on to something else. But I also struggled to find something that was as fulfilling as tennis is, as stressful and as heartbreaking that tennis has been at times, you know, but it's the, it's, it's something that I love so much. Obviously, you know, I wouldn't continue doing it unless I loved it. It's um, something that mentally that, you know, when I go, you know, when we go play tennis and we just forget everything, you're just there and playing and you don't look at your watch, you're just playing, trying to win or, you know, trying to play the score or work on a drill or, you know, so I wanted to find something that was like that. And um, I was doing a master's in nonprofit management at actually the same time as Ann Austin, who runs WT Charities, and we were actually classmates and partners in some projects together. That's kind of when I got to know her a little bit better. Um, and I remember uh, having an epiphany. Um, actually, I was so stressed about finding what was the next thing that I could not figure it out. And then I remember going to uh, Yellowstone with my sister on a little vacation. And finally, I was like, you know what, I'm just not going to worry about it. And then one night had an epiphany and was like, okay, wait, what WT Charities does and what it could do for players, because it's still in its growing stages, um, is I would love to be involved in that because, you know, charity and philanthropy has done so much for me, you know, in terms of my mental health and has given me purpose. And I would love to be able to share that with other players and to facilitate that for other players and, and tournaments and, and, um, you know, the WTA community. So, uh, reached out to Anne and said to her, Hey, you know, and it didn't happen right away, but said, Hey, I would love to, there was this, there wasn't this position before. So I said, love to work with you, work for you. I love what WT Charities is doing. Um, I think that I can provide value here and here, you know, and, and, um, and then I think a couple of months later, she reached out to me again and said, hey, you know, we'd love to get you involved. So, yeah, I've been really, really um, excited to be a part of WTA charities, um, getting players involved. And then, of course, with my own nonprofit and the USJ board, I feel um, I really enjoy the fact that I get three different lenses of the same field. You know, it's tennis and philanthropy. It's tennis and nonprofit. But 
from USTA board, it's this high level organizational position from WT Charities. It's a bit smaller, focusing really strictly with the philanthropy side. Um, my, my passion obviously is player engagement, uh, program development, and then with my nonprofit, it's um, on the ground and grassroots tennis. And, and we do also some international programs, which I'm really, uh, it's it's really um, motivating for me, you know, seeing those kids that don't have much, you know, being able to have the opportunity to play tennis. So um, I love kind of the trifecta of it. Well, that's a perfect transition to talking about Serving Up Hope, which is your nonprofit charity. And I know that you're in Uganda and you've also, you're working with kids in Chile in the slums. And how did this kind of dream happen and build up in you? So um, obviously with tennis, you know, we get to travel the world and, um, and through that travel, I recognize that not everyone is as fortunate as we are, you know, to, to grow up in with the circumstances that we have, even I would say, you know, the poorest of Americans don't have it as bad as the poorest in some other countries, you know, so, sure. um, and, and just, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Africa actually because I love wildlife. So I'd go on safaris and see the animals and take pictures of them because I love animals. Um, and but at that same time, you know, very interested in kind of the cultural um, aspect of it. You know, getting to know the people there, kind of seeing what they go through, um, seeing what their perspectives are. Um, I I just I find it fascinating you know I, I find it makes me a better person I feel like it makes me more open-minded I, I feel like it makes me more empathetic to learn more about other people and other cultures and why things happen the way they do and then just really saw um, unfortunately you know that there was a lot of difficulty for um, some communities um, and you know where we work in in Uganda um, these are kids that are incredibly talented, you know, but we, I started that program last year and these are kids that now can play points. You know, they're incredibly athletic. Um, most of them didn't have shoes when we started, you know, uh, it was funny. Some of them, we, in the beginning, I bought only a, a handful of shoes cause I had to hand carry everything cause oh, wow. shipping it is dangerous because, you know, they could take it and customs sure. could take it and it can disappear. So, um, the kids that got shoes, you know, we, at the end of each session, we'd go and, you know, do relays or running, running drills and, and they would take their shoes off because they're just, they're like, no, I got, if I got to run fast, I'm going to run without my shoes. Like, no, no, no. no. <laughs> well, at least, you know, for tennis, we're going to learn how to keep, like, we got to play with our shoes on. If you want to take your shoes off after you can do that. But, uh, um, so, you know, it was so, it was so fun to get to know them, but also, you know, um, the, the basic they 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 are used to the way that they live but yet it doesn't mean that I don't think that you know if their basic needs aren't being met if they're not getting food three times a day or yeah, as much as they need to be you know these are kids that might might eat once a day if they have to go several days without food that's what they do you know they might have one outfit they might have one outfit you know that's and and they don't have water running water they don't have electricity so you know they they might get to bathe once a month or you know so it's it's really a different world there and um so for me you know again the priorities like trying not to put my own judgments on what i think is best for them you know really just trying to provide more opportunity um you know like especially through sport 
through tennis, because obviously that's what I know and love. And so, um, and then everything else that I know that if you need to optimize your tennis performance, then providing those opportunities for them as well. But uh, we are planning to start a STEM program for them. Oh. Um, so we are collecting uh, used computers and notebooks and and tablets, if anybody has them, uh, we'd be happy, happy to collect them. Um, because yeah, again, you know, these are kids that don't have electricity. So, you know, for them to learn these skills would be um, kind of a, a game changer for them in terms of, you know, what kind of future opportunities might come. Wow, that's so great. And so how do people listening get involved with your charity and help out? Well, our charity is called Serving Up Hope. So, um, you know, like you're serving up. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and our website is servinguphope.org. So it's pretty easy. Just all three words uh, straight, servinguphope.org. We also have a social uh, social team. So we have um, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we also have Twitter, although I'm, I'm the one who's managing the Twitter and I'm not good at it. So it's there's not a lot of content on Twitter, but we are on social media, so you can follow us there. Um, and you know, if you ever want to get involved, you're welcome to send a message through our website or through our uh, social media. You know, I'm pretty much the one that's responding to all of it, so you'll probably get to me. Um, oh, that's so cool! Ago, you you wrote to me, and I, I answered because that's true. Me. That's true. Yeah, it. right, right from yeah, the website. So, uh, yeah, so you'll probably get a hold of me. Uh, we would love. You know, if, if you just want to follow and just see what we're doing, we are bringing some programs domestically actually starting this year. So actually we have a partnership with YMCA Metropolitan LA. Um, oh, we're starting wow. a program at our central location in July. Yeah. And we've got um, tentatively a program going to start in Boston with a partner uh, there called Tenacity. They're very integral in that community, uh, working at a, a couple of schools there in September in Boston. Um, and we've got a couple other tentative plans as well to start the programs domestically. So we definitely, LA is gonna happen in July. So we're really excited about that. Obviously I'm really excited because I'm from SoCal and my heart is there sure. um, no matter what. So yeah, I and wanted to so, start the first program. So many generous and giving people here in LA too. And I would love to be first in line to help in any way possible. So I would <laughs> love to like share, you know, with that, if you need oh, help yeah. managing or, you know, whatever, I would love to help. Uh, so we can talk oh, more yeah, about that awesome. as well. Yeah, but, that would be awesome. So yeah, I mean, you can connect with any, I, I, it, it's not too difficult to connect with, it's me, you'll connect with me. Um, <laughs> it's me. <laughs> way, yeah, to, to get anybody who wants to get involved. We do accept also um, used equipment donations. Uh, also, you know, the used um, computers and tablets for our STEM program. So, um, and then of course, if anybody is so inclined, we would very much appreciate any financial donations as well. But, um, you know, whatever you guys are comfortable with. That's so great. Well, Vanya, gosh, this has been a treat for me, a real honor. It's so nice to meet you. And of course, because it is May, it's Asian American Heritage Month, and we're paying tribute to the generations of Asians and Pacific Islanders that have been making a difference here in America. And you definitely have left your mark on history. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I know you're embarrassed by that, but it is so great that you have gone so far and done this. And I really feel like it gives us all Asian Americans, just the the dream that it is possible, and you you were that forerunner in so many ways. Yeah. So, 
I just think it's just awesome. Thank you. Well, thanks Will, for having me um, and for your thoughtful questions. I, I dredged up some memories that I, you know, were back in the memory bank. So I appreciate that. I yeah. loved how open you are about, you know, your past and your relationships and everything. I just think it helps so many people to hear because like I said, there are very few people that have been in your seat that have lived your life and uh, so many people want it. So many people want to know what does it take to become someone who can do what you did? And uh, we all have so much to learn, including myself. I would love to learn more <laughs> from you about what you do. I think it's interesting also that there's so many parallels between kind of Serena's family and your family, uh, just like Richard Williams picking Serena uh, and saying that she's going to go the farthest kind of thing. And uh, just knowing from the beginning that she had that fight and stuff, even though Venus was winning all the trophies at the time, you know, so interesting. Uh, I think studies have shown that the, I don't know if it's, I, I think it's the youngest child. I don't know if it's even the second child, but the youngest child typically does the best in sports. Um, and there's several reasons for that. One is because like the parents uh, have kind of learned all their mistakes, you know, the older <laughs> one. Yeah. The kid, yeah. And the younger kid grows up s surrounded by that sport. So it's not like there's no milestones. It's, you know, you're trying to chase something that someone's right. already done easier than chasing something that no one's done. Right. Um, yeah. So, it, and I think there's a couple other reasons, but yeah, it's quite interesting that typically it's a younger sibling that does yeah. well. What would you say to Asian American parents that have that mentality of, you know, hey, tennis is a hobby, uh, it's really hard, but also, you know, the pressure that they put on their kids to, you know, succeed and be the best, which, you know, often is impossible. Well, I would say that if you just go from a practical point of view and disregard even what your kid feels, because that is obviously what your kid feels is very important. But even just from a success standpoint, you might be successful as a junior, uh, but when you get to the top, it, it'll actually backfire. If you have someone that has been, you know, really controlled or really pressured um, as a pro, all of these things manifest in the big moments, these things manifest. And then it will actually inhibit your child's potential because they won't be able to play freely that they need to, that they would have to, to, wow. to step up to these moments. That's deep. Um, and then, yeah. I mean, at the, and then at the same, so just strictly from like, if you're thinking long-term and this is an investment, then, you know, it, it's important to find the right balance um, to, to make sure that your child is healthy both mentally and physically, you know, that they're healthy and motivated um, because otherwise it will turn around and bite you in the butt later on. And then in regards to the hobby thing, um, I think that nowadays, if you're at, you know, again, if you're talking about, I, I, I obviously think it's really important that your kid is happy, but if you're just talking from a successful standpoint, even having a hobby of tennis, first of all, tennis develops so many skills, you know, develops discipline and time management and, um, you know, team play and effort and, it, and gives you also, you know, skill development of tennis itself. And, you know, the networking that you could do down the line, um, also to put on your resume, going to college. Um, I think that there's a lot of value in, in having, you know, an extracurricular activity and, and doing it, um, to a certain extent of, 
skill and time. Um, yeah. I, I think that there's a lot of value. Like nowadays, colleges are not looking for just someone who gets the great SAT scores and straight A's, you know, um, 4.0 GPA. They're looking for diversity. So yeah. as you know, as much as your child can kind of go out of the box is actually nowadays more helpful. Um, so I would say from both standpoints, it's important to, to put your kids into a lot of things, you know, make sure that they enjoy it, push them when you need to, but also, you know, really communicate well with them. I wish that my parents commute. I wish they communicated with me, but they didn't, uh, they communicated to me, but not with me, you know, uh, so I wish that they would communicate with me, um, yeah. and really and value like, Hey, yeah, I'm young, but I still know. I still know what I want and I still know how I feel. Yeah. Well, gosh, you've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. I literally have like a hundred more questions. So let's please revisit this a year from now. I'd love to hear more about your foundation and how it's doing and what's happening and help to raise support for it as well. Any conversation, anytime would be <laughs> an honor and a privilege. So uh, really well, appreciate thank you so it. Much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank it, you. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. So there she is, Valerie Vanya King. Wow, she has really become one of my favorite tennis players. In talking to her and meeting her, I really feel like uh, I want to support her. Her foundation, Serving Up Hope, is such an inspiration, and I just feel like she has so much to give. And just being one of the very few Asian-American players to have won a Grand Slam trophy is something to me. It's just so inspiring and I'm just so proud of her. That's amazing. I'm, it, it really is. I mean, it kind of leaves me speechless, but I'm, I'm really glad that, you know, she was able to accomplish what she was able to accomplish. And that, that she, I don't know, that she was like the Asian community was represented at that level because representation in, in all forms like needs to be happening. And like you were saying, um, that there's just, there's been so many paths opened the way that tennis was back in the day and the way it is now, it's just so much better, right? Because then people see and they're like, I can do that. Right. And really that's what inspired this podcast, being a member of the USTA Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Just the idea of paying tribute to the generations of Asians and Pacific Islanders who have enriched America's history. And Vanya definitely has done that. She's definitely she's created a path for Asians and Pacific Islanders to be a part of the sport and to be invited in to maybe something that they didn't feel like was there. So I, I think she, in that way, she's definitely left a mark on history. Yes, so inspiring. I'm really glad that you, that you were able to secure that interview. This has been a game changer for the podcast, I think. Yeah, it's so great. And, and part of the initiative is a website that we've just launched. Uh, I should say a web page on lovesetmatch.net. You can go there and there's a complete guide to Asian American tennis players. So all the pros that have come through the game, listing their names and then links to their Wikipedia page. So I hope you'll take a minute to go to the website and visit that page. And just see that there are so many people, whether they're Indian American, Taiwanese American, Chinese American, Japanese American, Korean American. There have been so many different players that have represented their 
native country from their parents, but really they were born here. They identify as Americans, but they're Asian. And I think in light of all of the Asian racial hate that unfortunately has been shown in the media and that's been happening on the streets, I just feel really proud to be a part of a committee that helps to raise up the idea that Asians are making a difference and impacting society in a very positive way. 100%. Another part of the initiative is that we've partnered with Rosie Casals, the tennis legend and Grand Slam champion herself, and her nonprofit foundation, Love and Love Tennis Foundation. And if you want to contribute to a junior tennis scholarship fund for one Asian American up and coming player, you can make a donation on their page. It's tax deductible. Just go to their Facebook page. You can search Love and Love Tennis Foundation Inc. on Facebook and you'll find the donation link there. Using the Facebook donation link allows the charity to receive 100% of your donation without any administrative fees. So that's a really great way to donate and know that all of the money is actually going to the cause rather than Facebook or you know other administrative bodies taking a piece of it. And Valerie, the last thing that people can do is they can search uh, on the web Hashtag AAA Tennis, which stands for Asian American Awareness Tennis. Hashtag AAA Tennis on social media, and you can discover some other great Asian American focused content that's being put out there. Uh, I recently got to do a clubhouse gathering with some notable Asian American tennis players and people in the industry. So that was a lot of fun uh, talking to them. And I've had a lot of volunteer help from people on the committee like Mike Mora, who developed the website that I just talked about, and uh, George Chung, who works at Apple, uh, Ben Liu, who has had wonderful conversations with me about how we can help to grow beginner tennis access for people to play in the Southern California area, no matter what background they're at. So lots of really great things happening in tennis. Uh, I just want to keep highlighting that and just share that there is a lot of passion out there happening. You know, I think that's our job on the podcast, right? For sure. And what I love so much about you, Philip, I mean, there's a million and 10 things, Aww. but what I love so much about you is that you're just like always in the middle of all of it. I, I love it. <laughs> I do love being in the middle of it, but uh, yes, most of so all, cool. I love being next to you. So hopefully we can get together soon. Yeah, I was actually thinking earlier, I was like, why did I say I'm going to use Tennis Pal app to find someone to play tennis with this weekend? I'm going to make Philip play with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can come to our tennis party. We're having a memorial tennis party. I know, uh, with your fantastic barbecue of... That's it, of, on Monday. So if you want to come, I'll bring you can a zucchini. <laughs> well, unfortunately, there's not a lot of vegan options, but uh, we. I think we do have... The tamales with cheese, uh, I, but I don't know if that has like, if, does that pass the test? Oh, cheese, <laughs> yeah. duh, sorry. It's okay, it's okay. I, I cannot do what I generally do and just show up with my own little uh, bowl of veggies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do really hope you'll come out. That would be great. And for all of you listening, I hope you have a great Memorial Weekend and have a blast playing tennis with some friends that you love. And many thanks to Tennis Pal for supporting part two of this interview with Vanya King. They are the best tennis app that you can find to connect with other players in your area, read news, 
about the latest pro tennis tournaments and you can even find a coach there and they can do video coaching or meet with them in person so please visit tennispal.com for more information yes what do we have Thanks to look for- forward to in the next episode Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for reminding me. I really appreciate that. So our last podcast in May will feature Grant Chen. And Grant Chen is the former associate head coach of UCLA men's tennis. So he got to see Mackenzie McDonald go through and win both doubles and singles for the NCAA, which was astounding. Hadn't been done since the 60s, I think. So it was just an amazing season that they had while he was with them. But really, Grant Chen has been working there for 15 years. Started as someone who actually just picked up towels and was like a water boy and just helped out while he was uh, studying his normal academic studies at UCLA because he loved tennis so much. And he just kind of got promoted and promoted and promoted. And finally, he became the associate head coach with the famous Bruin head coach, Billy Martin. He was there for 15 years and has such a storied career. And out of that, he actually just got hired at SMU in Texas as the new head coach for tennis. Isn't that a great story? So cool. So hopefully, yeah, I can't wait to hear, I can't wait to hear that episode. And I don't have to wait long because May's almost over. That's right. It's coming up very, very soon. And I've got it in the can. So it's coming up soon. That's the next podcast. I hope you guys enjoy it and we'll tune in. Awesome. Till well, the next thanks time. For listen- yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. And may all may your, your serves, serves be aces. Be aces. <laughs>